Hello, welcome back to Tough Rugby Podcast. Please announce, got the usual man in the studio. Zachary, how are you, Sam? Yeah, not too, too bad. Um, Pod's always a good break from all the uni work we've got going on at the moment, so it's nice to, yeah, I'm excited for today, though. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Um, so I'm pleased to announce we've got Rudy Joubert, um, all the way from Johannesburg in South Africa on the line. How are you, uh, Rudy? Well, thank you. Hello, Alistair. Hi, Zach. I'm quite well here. You guys, you doing well? Yeah, doing the very best. Um, just trying to keep going with everything going on in the world at the moment. I think <laughs> seems to be with most people. So, oh, you got to just get on with it and, and keep their lives going. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, Rudy, um, doing our, doing a bit of reading about you. You've kind of we're way back. Um, you've got plenty of experience. You were technical advisor for the South Africa rugby team when they won the uh, World Cup 1995. And you also had roles with kind of Namibia as well as a bit of a stint in Super Rugby. So I think for the for the listeners, it's probably best just to go right back to the start, really, and kind of chat for your for your rugby coaching career. Um, and even before that, did, were, you, were you playing rugby? Um, and then how did you kind of get into kind of the coaching side of things? Yeah, well, thanks. As a as a South African kid, you start playing rugby around about the age of six, seven years old, and you get going. And I've been uh, all through my high school time, and then at the University of Pretoria, the Tuckies, as you will know, that uh, big university in Pretoria. I played there, and also when I had an injury as a young player at about around twenty-two, stopped playing, and I started actually getting into the coaching when I was twenty-four years old. So I was young. Not, not old, young. Yeah. And that is where my coaching career started off in University of Pretoria, part of the Bulls, uh, the Blue Bulls setup. And from then on, I moved across to, to the Lions, which was uh, um, in, in Johannesburg next door. We, myself and Kitch Christie got together around about in the 92, 93. And I got involved with Kitch. And uh, when he was appointed the coach of the Springboks in 94, he just uh, requested that I would join his management team. And we sort of uh, then found a name for my role at that stage. It wasn't very defined and it was called technical advisor, but it it was a lot of things. You know, I was doing analysis work. I was doing some fitness work, skill development stuff. We, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite involved. We had a very small management team at the time when we went across in 94, our very first tour to the UK after isolation, we went to Wales, Scotland and Ireland in 94 on a seven-week tour, which was 14 games. And that, that was a brilliant, brilliant tour. Mm-hmm. And it was only Kitch and Casey and myself, the physio, the team doctor and the manager. That was the whole management team taking wow. a squad of 50 players across. So <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit different nowadays yeah. when, when you look at things. Yeah. Now, nowadays it's nearly... Like a full squad in itself is the kind of coaching setup. Uh, I know, was it Sir Clive? I heard he brought nearly like over 20 people when England won the World Cup in 2003. So it's amazing then, just only took like eight years until kind of fully changed. Yeah, absolutely. Now it changed. And, and when we returned from 94, and I mean, those 14 games in seven weeks uh, took quite a toll. I mean, it's a lot of work. Yeah. We, we decided to, to bring on a few guys to give us a hand. So for the World Cup in 95, we had two guys to assist me with the analysis work. And, and, and one of the guys, Wilbert, with the forwards, well, which was Henny Backer. He's a, he's a South African lock forward that played for the Springboks in the 80s. 
and uh, and Dave Waterston, which was a New Zealander guy, who helped a little bit with the analysis. But that was basically it. That was the, the whole coaching complement for the World Cup. And uh, yeah, we did that. Yeah. Um, I also want to just mention to you guys that I, I also had a stint in Cardiff. I was involved with Cardiff as a director of rugby in 2001-2002. So I coached Cardiff in the 125th year. Nice. was part of the Heineken Cup. So Dai Young was, uh, was uh, my captain and he then started his role as, as coach in, in that year and as wow. well as... Uh, Martin Williams just took over from him as captain. So and Neil Jenkins and Rob Bowley played for that team, as well as Jonathan Jonathan Humphreys. So quite a number of uh, Welsh players that I coached yeah. at Cardiff actually got involved in the coaching quite big time. I mean, Jonathan yeah. now with Wales, Rob um, Die Young is with Wasps, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even uh, there was a Samoan guy, Simo Setiti, that was the captain of Samoa. He got involved with Samoan rugby as a coach mm-hmm. later on. Uh, it seemed that I had a, a little bit of an influence in a couple of guys. Yeah. Going <laughs> so really, you're just the you're the coach of coaches in a sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, really I don't know whether it was just luck or fortunate. And even Neil Jenkins, I mean, he's also involved in the kicking side of coaching yeah. with, with, with Cardiff. But I was uh, involved in coaching coaches in South Africa for a while, from from '97 till probably around about two two thousand. I, I, had, I ran a lot of coaching courses for South African rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also wrote a few coaching manuals at that stage, myself and and a good friend of mine, it was called Blicky Schroenewald. We did uh, the level one, level two coaching manuals for South Africa. We wrote that. So yeah, I was involved in, in that sort of role as well. Oh, no, that's, really, that's really cool. I guess going back then to kind of the, the big the big talking point, obviously, we've all watched, you know, Invictus is one of my favourite movies and definitely get it on after this pod after we're going to be chatting through the 95 World Cup. But just when you were kind of getting ready for that, what what was kind of the thoughts as South Africans? Did you feel you had a chance of winning it or was it more just see how far we can get? I knew, I knew New Zealand were obviously the heavy favourites with Lomu around that time. Yeah, actually, um, Alistair, Australia were maybe the bigger favourites because they won okay. the previous World Cup and they were almost unbeaten in that early 90s. I mean, they had a lot of wins on the road. I think they've even beaten New Zealand in the Bledisloe Cup running up to that World Cup. And so with Camp Easy and, and Timmy, uh, Timmy and, and uh, Michael, they were, uh, Greg and those guys, they had a massive good team. So our whole focus was just, we had a sort of a, you know, we had, we had, a, we had a, an interesting plan, one or two plans, uh, depending on how the first game would go. So the first game was the big watershed game for us. We played the opener at, uh, in Cape Town against the Aussies, who were the reigning champions. And so most of our analysis and our preparation was uh, to win that game and then take it from there just step by step. But we've put in a, a lot of work um, from a conditioning point of view and also a laws point of view. Those were our main focus for the World Cup. We, we realize that technically we, we are a little bit behind the rest of the world in certain aspects of the game, especially around the breakdown area. I think we lack there. And we were concerned about a couple of decisions. But, you know, if you understand and know the psyche of South African rugby at the time, and, and even still now, losing is not an option, really. You don't think about that as an option. You, you really believe that, that you're good enough that you can do it, although you, you still respect and you understand the challenge. And it was a massive challenge for us. To go into that World Cup, but uh, we we've put in a lot of hard work and a lot of preparation. Mm. Yeah, that's we, we, 
we believed that we could do it in a way, although I don't think it was shared by, by the whole country as such. <laughs> it's probably one of those, though, as the tournament progressed, kind of quarterfinal, semifinal, will probably build, build the kind of belief within the squad that you probably can do it. Yes, I think that but basically when we won that first game at Newlands on, on that opening game, it was a massive, massive boost to the belief in the squad. Mm-hmm. Um, we, our games against Romania and, uh, and Canada weren't great. I mean, that did put a little bit of doubt in a couple of things for us. And, and we had to look hard at ourselves in certain areas like discipline, etc. And we pride ourselves at discipline. We actually, if you go and look at that World Cup in that final, we only gave away six penalties. Wow. And uh, that made a massive difference. And, uh, but yes, the, the confidence built, although, you know, it, it, it's easy to talk afterwards, but there was always that big respect and that, that, that um, a little bit of doubt, you know, you know, the All Blacks were flying high with Jono Lomo just running over everybody, every cat and dog. And, <laughs> and uh, it, was, uh, it was quite intimidating, but uh, we realized, you know, we don't, we can't just focus on one player. We need to look at the, at, at the team, at the game and, and there was more about that. Uh, and our big focus then became how we can control position and field position. And then uh, from there on, we would, we would take it. Now, because me and Zach were laughing before we came on, and we said, one of the questions we have to ask you is, were you the person that masterminded how to stop John Alamu? <laughs> no, I, I won't say that. I think it was a, <laughs> quite a combined effort from the squad. I, I probably had a little bit of a, uh, yeah, a little bit of a, I did have some say in it, but it, there came a few ideas from a lot of guys because obviously it was a, it was something to consider and he, he was a target. But we, we watched and, and we saw that, um, you know, he, he was watching the ball all the time and, and he wasn't really a lot aware of what was going on on his outside. Okay. So for that day on our defence, firstly, our defence throughout the tournament and before that was 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 one that was well tailored for the sort of attack that the All Blacks brought because they, they played fairly deep and they tried to get the ball to Jonah as soon as possible, which is obvious. And we defended a man and a half out so we could get to the outside guys fairly quickly. So our fly-off would be in between their fly-off and the inside centre, which means our inside centre were between their centres. That is why you would have seen in that, that final that even your RP Miller on outside centre could get to Jonah because he was already halfway between the outside centre and the wing. And then we decided to put James Small on the outside of Jonah. So the, if he could come in to make the tackle, he would come from where he, he can't really, he's outside of his peripheral vision. Fortunately, James did not have to make a lot of tackles on him. Some other guys got there before him. So there were a lot of guys quite keen to make the tackles on, on yeah. Jonah the day. But it was, uh, it was just sheer commitment and, and, and sheer uh, determination that, that stopped him that day. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was a masterminded thing by anybody in particular. It was just a very, very, very determined group of players that, that didn't allow him to, to, to score tries. And what was it like just being in South Africa, home World Cup? Um, your team is in the World Cup final. What was the, what was the atmosphere like? around the nation because obviously you see it depicted in um you know movies like Invictus and you hear maybe there's documentaries out about it but from your perspective how did you kind of see that side of things not just on the rugby pitch but kind of off it as well was it was it this momentous watershed moment that it's often been depicted as or um 
Look, yeah, I sense. believe the World Cup picked up a lot of steam. And, and, and when I first realized that, that something is happening in the country is when we, we left the, the hotel that uh, the day on, on the opening match again, and I'll take it back to there. And we haven't even left for half, half a block. And we, we suddenly were being joined by, by a lot of taxis with people from all different colors and creeds in them. And they were just like sort of, uh, um, you know, although we had the, the police escorting us, they were also escorting the bus to the stadium and, and waving the flags and cheering. And, and it was unbelievable when we got to the, to the stadium, the bus almost couldn't get through for the people. How they were packing and cheering on the team. And, and, and there was a massive expectation. And obviously, after that win, the expectation grew. But with expectation, there's also a lot of pressure. Yeah, of course. So what from our side, what we experienced was a lot more pressure from the, the nation for us to perform, while I believe that the rest of the nation enjoyed it a little bit more than the guys <laughs> yeah. that were right in there, you know, preparing the team and wondering about the next game, and etc. But there was a massive expectation. There was a massive vibe. That the day when we left for the um, for the final game, it was very hard, even from the hotel, the doors to get to the bus. The way people came to, to, to wish us good luck, uh, yeah, it, it was. And from what I've gathered afterwards, speaking to a lot of my friends and the family, and, and, and it was like there was just nobody that missed that final that day, which is mm. quite crazy. Yeah, it was yeah, one of the end of the whole of whole of South Africa. I was literally watching it. Exactly. Yeah. What we realized how much an epic and impact it had, like in the townships, which wasn't traditionally a rugby place, but places like Soweto, where people were watching and cheering on and, and when we won. And I mean, that was like just amazing. I mean, we never expected that to, to, mm -hmm. to have that sort of effect, but it, it, it obviously had. I think Nelson Mandela obviously played a massive role in that. Mm -hmm. The fact that he supported the team, that he went out on the field with the number six jersey. That he, you know, he supported us right throughout the tournament. He came to our practice, as you've seen in the movie before, um, before the opening opening game. There was a lot of uh, communication and contact with him right throughout the tournament, and uh, I think that helped a lot. And that that probably, uh, you know, instilled that sort of national pride mm. with all the people. Yeah, you said about Mandela there. Who else? kind of was the main the leaders within that swapping team obviously you know your PNRs and stuff would they have been the ones that were driving the team was any like kind of silent leaders look um obviously Francois the captain had played a big role in it but there were a lot of different leaders in different in different respects obviously Kitsch was a uh, was a as a coach he, he, had, he had a, a major role Mornay Duplessis, as an ex-Springbok captain coming on in the role of the manager, did a, did a great job. But there were quite a number of senior players in the squad that was, uh, you know, doing great things at the time. And, and I think um, enhanced by, by guys like Francois and, and Nelson Mandela and, and Kitchen and Mornay, that, that all came together in, in, in quite a powerful sort of, sort of leadership. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And how did you, my question is, like, how did you kind of, you talk about the pressure that comes with, you know, the whole of a nation um, wanting you to win. Was there any particular way you tried to deal with that pressure or, um, yeah, was there anything you did or was it just more getting on with things? Like, how, how did you deal with that pressure? 
um because there's a lot of pressure when a whole nation is rooting for you and wanting you to yeah. win I think the fortunate thing is, uh, Zach, when you grow up as a rugby player and, and a guy in South Africa, then uh, you're always expected to win. It is yeah. something that's part of, 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 of the character of, of, of the guys that, that play at the top levels, whether it's Curry Cup or... or, or, or mm-hmm. And if you pick for the Springboks, you, you have that pressure. So that pressure is always part of... of of a person that's involved at that level of the game in South Africa. So I think in a way that that prepared us quite nicely for that because people are very, very unforgiving uh, with the national side. And, 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 you know, they just can't believe that, that the team can lose. I mean, prior to 92, we were the only country in the world that had more wins against New Zealand than losses. Hmm. So that gave us sort of a, a certain belief, wrongly or rightly, that, you know, we should not lose. So you grow up in a way with that expectation, but during the World Cup, your mind is so much on what needs to be done next and what are the next steps and, and make sure that everybody is in the right shape and everything is ready and, and we've planned and we've analysed and, and we know where we're going. And I think when you focus like that, probably some of the pressure just goes a little bit past you. And, and in a way, we were we were not that exposed to everybody all the time. You know, we were confined to... to to the team and, and we were busy mm-hmm. doing our things. We had a good break going to Sun City halfway which I think was a good thing to release the pressure. The guys played golf. We had the, the non-golfers had a did some jet skiing there. We had a bit of a scary incident there where, where Os and Kovas Visa drove into each other with, with jet bikes but they luckily <laughs> neither the jet bike nor the two of them had any injuries <laughs> yeah. but that was a little bit of a scare but <laughs> i think that broke a lot of the pressure and uh, and i'm sure each and every player in his own right you know had to deal with it in a different way i mean i had yeah. a chat with mark andrews only the other day probably a year ago when we had a little bit of a get together and i never realized how much he took pressure because we moved him to number eight to play his very first game in his life at number eight and not <laughs> at second row. And I didn't realize at that time because he never said it then and he never showed it then, but he was, he was, he was very, very, very stressed about the fact that he had to play number eight. That yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's yeah. It's just, it's great. Just kind of getting a firsthand account of just 95. It's, it's honestly, it's fascinating. Um, I think for me, one more question I would ha- have to ask is in, in regard to the final is what was going through your head when the big jumbo jet kind of flew really close to the stadium? Like, w- w- did you know that was coming? Did anyone know it was coming? Because for me, that would probably freak me out if I just see this massive plane coming towards the stadium, you know, that low. Can I can I take you back a week before yeah. that, maybe, which was a very interesting game, which not a lot of people talk about, and that was the French okay. game in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that game uh, that we played that day was was very close to probably our best game of the tournament, um, and I still believe today because I've got to give the French credit they had a very good side, mm-hmm. and I think they were they could probably. Had a side that could beat the All Blacks as well. I mean, they, they were really, really good. Um, I think we were fortunate to play them in the rain. In, on yeah. a dry day, we might have had problems. Um, there is a controversial try that was stopped, but uh, 
I had a chat to Eni LaRue the other day, and, and he assured me that his hand was under that ball, so that was no try. Because <laughs> it always haunted me a little bit yeah. whether that was, should have been allowed or not. But uh, well, now that now now I'm feeling better about the fact. But I believe that we won that day because the French didn't want to play; they wanted the game to stop because then they were through because of the red card and the yellow cards. And we wanted to play, and I think that made a massive difference. So eventually, when that game did carried on, and I'm really pleased that he did. I don't think a World Cup should end up in a way where a game is is postponed, or, you know, yeah. suspended, and then one team goes through on a technicality. I think that that would be very, very bad. But they weren't keen to get out in the. I think they were really believing that that game was theirs, and they were going through to the final. And I mean that. That to me that day was the difference between the two teams, and it was still a very close game. We were very relieved, very happy, and and I think that gave our confidence also a big boost going into the final. We knew, and especially from from our set pieces point of view, our scrum against a very strong, powerful French scrum held out very well, and not just held out, did very very well, and I knew then. If we're going to do well in the set pieces, in the scrums and the lineouts, we're in with a very good chance to win that game. But coming back to your question about the the, the plane that went over the the stadium, I actually never saw it. Unfortunately, that okay. day I was inside, <laughs> busy with the players, and uh, okay, <laughs> I only saw it afterwards. <laughs> but I heard it. I heard the noise. And yeah. I wonder what is happening. But the guys that were out there, just you know, it was just something out of this world. They mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm the wrong guy to ask that question. But I, yeah, no I worries at all. I thought, no, I had to ask it. I had to ask it. Yeah, um, that's that's all. That's all fascinating. And then, kind of, we're two Irishmen, so we um we would take one World Cup and use as Springboks a free, which is <laughs> a bit greedy, but um. Then rolling forward to 2007, kind of watching it not involved as of obviously you're heavily interested as a fan and stuff. But what was that feeling like of winning the World Cup without the pressure of being involved in like the coaching setup? 2007, yeah, mm-hmm. and also and also 2019 as well. Um, how yeah, how does that compare to to 95 in your in your view? Look, it 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 is. Each one of those World Cups are unique, unique in its own way, and because we were the first ones, um, it will always probably stay special. Yeah. But winning a Rugby World Cup is a special occasion to anybody, to any country, to any person that's involved in that, and it's very difficult to talk on behalf of others. But I watched the 2007 World Cup final, and uh, it was different to 2000 uh, to 95 because I really believe that. Actually, that game, we can't lose. I mean, we... <laughs> or or let, let me put it to you this way. England can't win it. We can only lose it. I mean, we the team was very um, experienced. There were some really good players. Um, mm. England, we beat England going up, you know, in the pool games. And uh, we had a bigger scare against, I think it was Fiji, running up to that final and we had against England. Um, but I, I really believe that that, that that was just a game if the guys put their heads down and just do what they need to do. That So I, I watched that a lot more relaxed than I watched the 95 <laughs> game, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, um, and then 2019 was was the, was the opposite to me. I, I really, um, although having watched uh, England demolish or, or beat the All Blacks 
in that game and then started thinking about what's going to happen, I had a chat to a couple of mates of mine. And, and what you'll find with, with World Cup games, and, and that, I believe, what was the reason why we got it in, in 2019, very few, I don't think no team in the world managed to play two perfect games in a row. I don't know of any team that can beat New Zealand and South Africa two weekends consecutively. Yeah. Um, and I believe in 95, New Zealand played their game against England the way that England played their game against New Zealand in 2019. Mm. Um, that was the one thing. The other thing that I was really more surprised than anybody else is that the way that New Zealand gave England quick ball in their game. They just allowed them to get quick ball. They were not attacking the rucks. And England just had a lot, a good, lot of momentum. They could run their plays. They could get the ball to the speedsters. And also, you know, sometimes playing people out of position works for you and then it's a good idea and sometimes it doesn't and then it's a bad idea. Yeah. And when uh, um, Barrett played on, on, the, on, the, on the flank and uh, his brother played on fullback, I don't think that was... Uh, the two Barretts out of position to me was, was not a great idea from mm -hmm. a New Zealand perspective. But going into to the final... Although I realized all of that and I, and I knew that we're going to attack the breakdowns and I knew that no team can play two games like that in consecutively, I was concerned. I was really concerned. I, I was worried about the way we were playing the game. I was worried about our game plan going into that game. But I've got to give the guys credit. And I was, I was, I was really, really tense watching that game and really happy that we won it. But I was very surprised. I, I mean, the, our boys surprised me unbelievably in 2019. They played a, it's one of the best games they've played in many, many years. And, and I mean, Cheslin Colby was just super fantastic. Yeah, and he was spot on that day. And the forwards, obviously, I mean, if your forward pack dominates like that and they're physical like that, it's very hard to win tight games. Mm. No, so that's, that's, that's fascinating. And then... It's a weird um, kind of thing that it's kind of all come at the same time where it's kind of all been kind of 12 years apart. Do you think it'll be another 12 years and it'll be a perfect sequence? Look, I, I'm not a believer in all these 12 years or six years <laughs> or anything. And it, it's, um, it happened and it's good. And, and I hope it doesn't, you know, take another 12 years. But um, it's very difficult to predict where we're going to be in the next World Cup because there's going to be a change of players. This whole COVID thing, and we haven't played rugby for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, I'm i really concerned about the, the, the players and where they will be, their readiness for the British and Irish Lions tour, if it's going to happen later mm -hmm. on this year. I, I'm really worried. I was part of, a, of, the, of the 97 a management team that lost to the Lions in South Africa. So I know it's not it's not a it's not an easy game. It's going to be very very tough. And mm -hmm. uh, the British and Irish Lions at players at the moment are in good form all around, having watched the Six Nations. I think uh, it's going to be interesting. So, but I, it's very difficult to say. And twelve years is a long time. Twelve years, yeah. things happening yeah. every twelve years is a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Just finally, then on the on the World Cup, maybe before we touch maybe a bit on the Lions there. Um, do you have a picture of you with the World Cup on the on the pitch somewhere in your house? We, I, I've got a, I haven't got it in my house. 
Actually, I don't have any rugby photos in my house. <laughs> I've got it in my office normally. Okay. But I've got a picture of uh, of myself with, with, the, with the World Cup. Yeah, we had a we were in the change room afterwards, not on the field as such, but in the change room. We had some very nice pictures with the World Cup, and um, yeah, I especially I had a few pictures. I had one or two pictures of Joost. Because I incidentally coached him as an under-19 player at the university. Okay. He was my captain for my team. So oh. I had a really long connotation with USD. He was my captain when I coached the Bulls in Super Rugby in 2003 as well, which was basically his last year of, of professional rugby. So I, I go along. I went, I've been involved with him for a long time in his life. I mean, I knew him as a schoolboy from 15, 16-year-old. So I've got that. And I've got another picture in our last visit to 2015 World Cup in, in, in England, in London, we had a, we had a dinner okay. and uh, we, had a, we had a picture of the World Cup together there when he was, nice. was in his, his wheelchair at that stage. Yeah. No, because they always say those reunions are nearly better than the actual day when you want it, always getting together 10 years, 20 years at all the reunions. But then moving yeah. on to kind of the, the kind of Lions in 97, how, uh, from the other side of it, obviously me and Zach are from the uh, Big Lions supporters and we're really excited for this tour. And yeah. for us, it's like the pinnacle of international rugby in the Northern Hemisphere is playing for the Lions. From the from a Springbok perspective, how big is the Lions coming to South Africa? It's massive. It's massive. I mean, uh, it's it's important to us and, and we love it. And, and I mean, it, it's it's a massive thing. The Lions is, is a massive must for us. And, and everybody is really really hoping that it's going to happen because it is a big thing for us. We've got a huge respect for the Lions. We've got a massive history with the Lions. I mean, it's one of those things that that people would like to experience. They would like that. Players, I mean, I think you miss out if you haven't been involved in, 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 a, in a series against the Lions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting just because obviously, like you were saying, Telf, that for us, we obviously we support the Lions and we love them and we hope it continues. Um, but then it's it's nice knowing that it's almost reciprocated on the other side that it is a is a massive spectacle in a sense. Um, yeah, and then going going forward into being kind of coach of Nabia for the ninety nine World Cup. Yeah, what what was what was that like? What was it like transitioning from being kind of backroom staff for a World Cup winning side, a side that then, you know, played in a Lions series to then being kind of coach of, of, a, of another nation. What was that like? I was, uh, I was uh, in, uh, I was working for East South African Rugby at the time and they had this request from Namibia for, to be helped out and, Having a chat to the CEO and, and, and the president at that time, they asked me if I was prepared and willing okay. to go and be seconded and, and, and go and do the job there because I was I already decided that I was going into coaching and I was leaving the coaching education side of things. Okay. Um, and I agreed. I didn't really knew what I was letting myself into, but uh, <laughs> I don't regret it at all, as well. Mm -hmm. But it was a massive, massive change. When I arrived in Vintuk, you know, there was not a lot of uh, infrastructure. There was not a lot of support. I had to organize a lot of things around the team. Mm -hmm. 
But the players are great. I mean, they were all part-timers from all over the country, some farming up north, some busy with their lives. They had to take um, unpaid leave for that for that tournament. Wow. We organized a big, uh, a big uh, function, a big um, sort of gala evening where I got people from South Africa. I had Uli Schmidt as, as a guest speaker because Uli played with me as an under-20 player at the University of Pretoria. He was, incidentally, my team doctor as well with the Bulls in 2003. And he was uh, the Springbok doctor as well when I was involved. So he got the cross and a couple of other guys. And, and we raised basically the pocket money for the players to go to the World Cup because oh. there were just no funds for them. While other guys were getting massive salaries, yeah. the Namibian players had to take unpaid leave. And, and, and we, uh, yeah, we generated quite a bit of money for them. And we went across and, and we were in a tough pool with Fiji and France and Canada. Um, and um, we, uh, we actually, if you go back to that, that, that tournament, at half time in Bordeaux, Namibia was leading France, the same team that beat the All Blacks that year. We were leading 16-13 and then Dominici did his magic again and I think he scored about three tries against us. Okay. In the space of 10 minutes and uh, we just couldn't keep up with, with the tempo and, and those guys that was that was a massive but i learned a lot from that and and it was great i mean i i really i enjoyed it not probably to the extent the 95 because you can never replace 95 at all but i did enjoy it in a different way and and it was it was good for my development as a coach mm -hmm. you know, to, yeah. to, to get players that are mm -hmm. part-time go and perform on a world stage against guys that are fully professional. It was, it was a tough, tough assignment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, so kind of, I guess you're kind of in the right in the kind of overlap of the ages as it were, as a coach, you've gone, you were coaching um, in the coaching setup of South Africa kind of, and then um, through to Namibia. And then you were saying you're at Cardiff and then you were at the Bulls and how you've, your basic your coaching career in those kind of eight years and, and onwards now, but you kind of saw the transition from amateur semi professional rugby to professional rugby. How did yeah. you how did you find that? Because that we, we almost forget about it, I think, a lot. Well, from younger generations like ourselves, maybe we'll forget about the fact that rugby didn't used to be this professional um sport it was amateur people played it because they loved it and they'd take unpaid leave and go off to world cups but how did you find that transition being a coach at that time um yeah look i, I loved it because all my life when i even started off coaching at the university as a as a part-time volunteer coach as you can say and, and i coached in evenings and i had my job and and i always you know at this um thing that I would love to just do that mm -hmm. as a job and uh, then I got one of the first professional jobs in rugby in South Africa in 93 with Transvaal to, to be part of their coaching education and the coaching side there and there were only probably four of us in the country that had that sort of privilege um, but that gave you the opportunity to really start doing the things that is needed you could go in depth into analysis you can go in depth in planning stuff you can go in depth in in getting things prepared to prepare the players for a game that needs that sort of preparation if you really want to play it on the top. Sometimes I do believe that we get to stages where we might be 
taking it a bit too far, some of the analysis stuff and some of the stuff around the team. You've got to be careful not to add on things just because it looks nice, but it's not really contributing. And some cases it might even be not really that good for the team to have that many people around them that's got different point of views that can, you know, that's got different ideas. And, but I think it's great. I think it's great that, that people have got the opportunity nowadays to, to live and work in a game that they love as a, as a mm. kid. Um, but it's, it's, it's a tough world and, and you've got to really be prepared to, to, to put in a lot of effort and a lot of work. I and mean, it takes a lot from your private life and you've got to be careful about that, not to, to waste your life away. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. Easily take over. Um, on the Mibia, just did you find it kind of frustrating? And I know a lot of people have come out now, these kind of tier two and tier three countries internationally maybe don't get the support they kind of need to challenge with bigger bigger nations like England, Ireland, South Africa, etc. I do believe that we need to support those countries a little bit more to create a bigger, broader base of, of competitive countries. But it's the, the, the question is, we should do that. The question is, you know, and, and if, if it's not happening naturally in a country, then the question is, do they really want that? Because um, there are really small countries in the world that get themselves organized and get going right to the top. So I don't think it's an excuse, but yeah. It is a bit frustrated to see that some of the countries that's got the potential are not getting there because they might not be getting the financial support at the moment. But they've got to look at themselves as well a little bit. They've got to start, you know, doing a couple of things differently to, to get themselves to. And it's possible. It's really possible for a few countries out there, I believe, that can get right up to the top if they just get their structures sorted out and if they get a few things in place, which is not that difficult, and if, and if their management and the, and the people that governs the, the rugby in the country decide to go the professional way fully and don't hang on to amateur ideas and try and stay in an amateur world and also going to the professional side. Because you can't have both. You've got to, when you go professional, you've got to go full out from the people that govern the, the sport right through to the players. You've got mm. to do it that out. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. It's good. And then I guess if we're if we're kind of moving and kind of how your how your coaching career went, then going to Cardiff, and you said about playing in the in the Heineken Cup and big competitions like that. How did you find them moving up to the Northern Hemisphere, which might be renowned for not being as kind of flashy as Super Rugby and things like that? You know, I I, uh, it, it, I enjoyed it, and I'm a little I, I do regret that I came back. A little bit quicker than I, I should have. I was lured back to South Africa to come and coach the Bulls in Super Rugby yeah. at the end of my first year, and I should have. I should have stayed a little bit longer. I should have stayed at least four years. It was what I found at that stage in, in, in 2001 that actually the players and the coaches were paying a lot more attention to detail than what we've been in South Africa. We've been relying on a lot of talent and the weather and some natural abilities and our structures and the way we played the game to get good results. While in the Northern Hemisphere, and especially in Wales at that time, the, the development guys, the coaches and the players were paying a lot more attention to detail than what we've been doing, which was great to see. Um, it was nice to, to work in a different environment. It is challenging, as you know, my, my first language is not English. 
and definitely not Welsh. And, <laughs> and, uh, but I enjoyed it and, and the people was very welcoming and I, and I was I really I was at home and, and the nice thing with Wales and quite of having a bit of a tradition with Gareth Edwards and those guys that played a more free running style of rugby, which is something that I've always been coaching. And I could get Cardiff to start doing that. And obviously, when you play that sort of rugby in that weather, you're not always going to get all the results you want. But it was getting there. And, and I, I think I managed to show them that you can even play a much better running game, even in bad weather, if, if you really stick to it and if you equip the players with the right skills. It was a good um, learning experience for me. And I think I brought back some very positive stuff from, from the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm really pleased that I've done it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And how did you find? Because at that point, I find it seemed to be that Northern Hemisphere rugby was still developing and still kind of finding its feet. In a sense, did you get that sense at all? Being at Cardiff, even for for a, for a shorter time, did you find that it was still figuring out this professionalness of of, of rugby? Um, yeah, there were things in certain areas that I found that they were still trying to find their feet, although England at the time was not bad. England mm -hmm. was a, okay. in a good space. But Wales, maybe with the, the way the, the, the rugby was structured in, 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 the, in the country with the clubs, etc. And uh, the one thing that I found was maybe that needed a lot of... Uh, Thing was that on the medical side of things, you know, the, okay. the physios and the biochemists and the medical support to the players right on the field and during training times. And I think they've jacked up on that. Quite, although there were some brilliant people involved with the game, they weren't involved full-time and professionally. They were involved part-time and they were very, very good people, mm -hmm. but they weren't their hands-on all the time that was needed to, to, to make sure that the players get that sort of support that differentiates from that. And, uh, and maybe also, maybe on the development side of things, on the junior rugby, getting guys to get a, a taste of a little bit more competitive rugby at a younger age to see what it's like and um, start start to, to, to be a little bit more serious and a little bit younger. I think that's changed a lot. When I was there, it wasn't really 100% mm -hmm. in place. Okay. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier you coached some big names in Welsh rugby. Um, who was your favorite player? I don't know if you can answer that um, fully, but who was the the standout player? Maybe both, maybe um, ability wise or leadership wise or whatever. Who was kind of one of the big ones um, that kind of stood out to you? Where was that in Wales? Yeah, yeah, at Cardiff. Yeah, Cardiff. Yeah, that's difficult. I must say, I uh, I really uh, enjoyed my time there. There were a number of some some really good players, and I think Dai Young was one of the outstanding guys. That uh, if I had to pick one, and it's very difficult because guys like Neil Jenkins and um, Jonathan Humphreys, there was this, there were some really 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 good players. Um, I just started coaching. Uh, a young fly off that became a bit much better known player later on was Nicky Robinson. He was okay. very young at the time when I was at Cardiff. Uh -huh. And I really believed that he had a lot of potential and talent. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and he was really, you know, taking on the stuff that we wanted to do in a big way. But yeah, if I had to, and that's a very difficult question. Yeah, it's a, I know it's a cheeky yeah. question. It's a cheeky it's a very question. Very cheeky question. <laughs> 
yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. Um, it's then I guess as we're kind of we're kind of doing this, I suppose it's a linear progression we're currently doing <laughs> this chat. So you've 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 just you've come back to South Africa to coach the Bulls. Um, like what 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 was that like? Kind of were the, were the Bulls your team in South Africa? Yeah, look, I was with the University of Pretoria for 12 years. Um, mm -hmm. I, I studied there, I played there, I coached there. It was basically my club, and they were part of the Bulls. Although I went to the Lions for that stint with the 95 World Cup, um, yep. Pretoria as a environment is one of the best environments for anybody to coach rugby. The city is about rugby. The facilities is great. I don't know if you guys have been to Pretoria to Loftus. I haven't, unfortunately. Um, it's something that you can you can do someday, but it's uh, everything is just you know conducive to. Mm. to I mean, it's just the, the talent, the people, uh, everything. The infrastructure is brilliant, and uh, at that time there were some really really good young talent coming through. Mm. whilst there was one or two senior players like us that was still there but the guys like victor matfield were young guys up and coming guys i mean uh Florida priya was a and a 21 player at the time that whole team that won the 2007 world world cup were young mm. players in 2003 mm. and uh but very talented guys and, and i really enjoyed my time with them because um before i got to the bulls in the Three seasons prior to that, they only won like one game and they had one draw. And uh, the, the 2002 season, they had only losses. So that was a good challenge for me. Yeah. And within one season, we, we ended up fifth in Super Rugby. Just, yeah, that's a, quite so the chain turnaround. We, we actually got a, the very first historic win for the Bulls in New Zealand was in 2003 when we beat the Hurricanes in Napier. Okay. Which, was, which was something that was something that I cherish quite 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 a lot, and but that was enjoyable. No, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was that was a good good experience for me. Then was a have you as you said about that crop of young players, seeing them then go through winning kind of the Super Rugby from like two thousand seven, was it oh nine ten? Like they, they won a couple there. Was that quite satisfying seeing some of those young players then reach the pinnacle with the Blues or the the Bulls, yes, it was very satisfying, and even uh, a guy like Victor Matfield. I mean, I, I made him captain. US was the captain in two thousand three, and I, I made Victor captain in two thousand four. And there was a lot of resistance from from the management and the okay. committee members. To, you see, in South Africa, there was a little bit of conservatism that time. If your hair is too long and you don't wear the right clothes, you, you know you shouldn't be a captain. Right, and, uh, and Victor didn't fit that sort of profile exactly what they wanted, but he, he's, he's a really intelligent guy. He's a good player. He's a leader on the field. He was exceptional in his, in his work ethics. And, 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 and I mean, for me to see him becoming one of the most successful Springboks, he captained the Bulls then. He was he's the most cap, Bulls captain at all time. That to me was very, very satisfying. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And then I know it's quite a difficult one to answer, but as uh, obviously being involved with Super Rugby and South Africa, where do you see these South African clubs now playing? And do you find it quite sad that maybe the Super Rugby days could be over? 
that, that, that is uh, that is a touchy question and, and, and I'll answer it as honestly as I can and I know it's a little bit of a political thing but I am sad that we've left uh, Super Rugby uh, and it's not because of disrespect it's just from a historical point of view you know that we've uh, we've played with Australia and New Zealand in, in that competition and uh, it is tough I can tell you now to travel to, to Australia and New Zealand and you arrive I mean, we, as I say, we played our first game in Napier in, in, in New Zealand. So we fly out here, fly to Sydney, you stay over, you fly to Auckland, you get on a plane, you get down to the, to, uh, to the other side of the, of the island. And, and uh, you, before you know it, you've got 11 hours time difference and you've got to fix that within a week. That's a massive challenge. But um, I think it it makes sense that we play up north with the time zone, etc. And I think it's going to prove a different challenge and maybe a new challenge that is needed for South African rugby. But for me, that was part of super rugby for so long. I do feel a little bit sad about it, but uh, I cannot really comment whether it's good or bad. I'm looking forward to see how we're going to do in the Northern Hemisphere. I, I don't believe we're going to be doing so well in the first season as everybody expect us to do. I think it's going to be a little bit of a, a eye-opener for these teams. I think the Pro 14 is in a good place. There's some teams there that play some really good rugby, especially the Irish teams. And then even like the, the Dragons and, and guys like that. So, and um, mm-hmm. and uh, I know that, you know, that Edinburgh is and Glasgow has picked up their game in the last 10 years tremendously. When I was with Cardiff and when we had to go over to Edinburgh, it wasn't the same. I mean, Scottish mm-hmm. rugby and especially those clubs have really improved their game in a massive way. So it's going to be interesting and it's going to be, uh, yeah, it would be good to see. And, and as I say, from a time zone point of view, it will be better. Um, but we'll see. Time will tell about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, me and Zach are, we're two Ulster men, so as people that follow Pro 14, we, we're kind of excited for it to be spiced up a bit. I feel it's kind of been dominated by the Irish sides recently, so it'd be nice to kind of have some competition and, yeah, but I'm sure it'll take a few years just to see what exactly happens, but it's exciting nonetheless. Look, it's going to be uh, without any, um, I'm not being disrespectful, but the four teams going in there are going to be a tad better than the the ones that was there before. Yeah, so. no, we yeah. totally agree. <laughs> we, we welcome it. You know, we like Telfer said. There's a real, maybe, maybe it's unfair on us saying this, but um, Ulster, Leinster, Munster, and sometimes Connacht as well. We, you know, they're Ulster or Leinster and Munster were in the final of the Pro 14. Ulster were nearly there. They would have been in a semi if one happened. Yeah. Um, and it's great, but for us playing in European rugby, it's just you'll just get thumped by Toulouse or whoever you're playing because their sides are just so much better. So it's it's definitely a welcomed kind of increase in competition for us. But um, yeah, time will You don't always get thumped by the French teams. You do yeah. well in European yeah, rugby. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm being harsh. I'm being harsh. I understand. <laughs> I think you're a bit unfair there. Yeah. <laughs> I must say that I think Toulouse this season and the past season is playing some exceptional rugby. Yeah, and, and with a few South Africans in the mix as well, the likes of Colby, how do you, um, how do you find that? As a lot, there seems to be, like we as Ulster men, we had Ruan Pinar at the club for years, and he was a 
massive part of the development of Ulster over the past few years. Yeah. It was sad to see him go. How do you, as a South African, how do you feel about your players going off to the Northern Hemisphere to play their rugby? Look, I think I've got to answer that question from one being a South African and then the other side being a professional rugby guy. And I mean, yeah. there's a difference from it. From a yeah, point of view, you would be not happy to see that day. You would like to see your players in your domestic competition week in and week out. As a professional rugby person, I think it's great. I think it's really good for their personal development. I think it's good for world rugby. It's, it's not a bad thing as long as it's managed properly and it doesn't get out of hand. I think the French system got a little bit out of hand at times mm -hmm. and you've got to be careful with that. But I, I believe that Cheslin in a game, in a team like Toulouse, his, his talent will just develop yeah. even more. I mean, it's brilliant. And I mean, Ruan just grew in, in composure when he went to Ulster. Mm. That's the sort of thing that uh, I think you've got to acknowledge and, and respect. And, I, and it, there's good and bad things about it, but there's a lot more positives about it than negatives. Mm -hmm. No, no, definitely. And what are you kind of doing now? Are you, have you used involved in any coaching or rugby? Now, the last bit that I was involved in, maybe Ben spoke about it, is when this Global Rapid Rugby was started. And mm -hmm. uh, I took the South African Falker team um, as the Malaysian Falker. And that, that now, because of COVID, is, is finished and gone. But I'm, I'm busy um, with some, yeah, you know, with a project that I can't talk too much about. Unfortunately, it's still wow. very much in the, in the process. But I'm still involved in rugby and I'm still going to be involved in sport and uh, and hopefully, but it will be, and uh, ironically, it's also going to be in Europe. So oh, nice. I might find myself <laughs> in Europe in the, in the next few months and in, in, in a role in, in, in rugby. Cool. Well, we look forward to hearing it when the news breaks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's exciting and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And um, you always need new challenges. You know, once you've achieved things, you've got to find something that's challenging. Otherwise, you will just stagnate and, and go backwards. No, and you're definitely yeah. talking to you today. You've had you've had plenty of challenges and a lot more success than failures. Any anyway. Um, just then, finally, I think a, a nice thing to finish on is, what would your prediction be then ahead of say all goes ahead and the Lions come over to South Africa in the summer for the tour? Would you say? you'd say South Africa too strong world champions or maybe the lack of rugby might edge it for the Lions? I would hope that uh, we could get another series win. It would always be good for the country. But uh, if I had to put money on it, I won't do that at this stage. <laughs> does Jeremy Guskett's drop goal still, does that still hurt when you see it back? Look, the drop goal was only part of, of, of that. I mean, there were a lot of things in that series that uh, we could have done differently and we could have won. It was close. It was it was a very close series, that. And uh, the, one of the reasons, and from a coaching perspective, that we, if you want to say wrong, I mean, it's always easy to, to evaluate things when, when, you, when you've lost. We changed our playing style to a lot more... Uh, running style of rugby and because Carl Duplessis was the coach with myself and Gert Small assisting him and all of us are big believers in in, in, uh, in running rugby and, and in, in more attacking sort of rugby and we got players together and it wasn't like in 95 where the core of the team was Transvaal and they understood what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Our team in 97 was, was a lot more um, balanced between the, the different um, 
provinces in South Africa. And in a short space of time, we wanted to get them to play a style of rugby that a fair percentage of them wasn't used to. And that sort of little doubt when you get into tough situations. I mean, Henry Hannibal had an opportunity in that test where Gus got dropped, where he was like 10 meters from the try line. And he only needed to hold the ball for a second or two longer and then make a pass. And he, and he went for the grubber that, uh, so we couldn't score. And I'm not saying it's his fault. I mean, it's just one of the, and I can take out lots of examples where people, the players weren't used to what we're trying to achieve. But what we've done and the foundation that we've laid, and laid a foundation for um, the 98 tour to Europe where South Africa beat France by almost 50 points. And mm. they played that sort of rugby. Because mm. the players then started to believe and it was getting through to them. But yeah, it was, but the Lions was a good team in 97. I mean, no, it was, it was, we were, and we were in the transition phase getting from the 95 guys to the next group of players that's always a challenge not making any excuses i think the, the lines mm. were brilliant no i'd say though for me that that kind of south africa team for 07 when they beat the lines were for me one of the greatest south african sides ever of brian abana and matt field and all jp peterson all in their prime there was there was no team in the world that were even getting close to them and winning an alliance tour and then a World Cup has to then put them really in the mix for greatest international side of all time, in my opinion. I think we had a better side like that in, in the 80s. I think if we had to go to the World Cup in, in the 80s, the very first World Cup, you would have seen a South African side maybe better than the 2007 one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that 2007 side has got a brilliant talent. I mean, Abana and JP on their prime and, and Mornay and Farida Priya. And also the forwards, like, I mean, Bokis and Victor as, as, as a second row pairing. You will not find much better than that anywhere at any time. I don't think so. Um, John Smith as, as, as a great solid captain and I mean we had a, and, and the loose forwards I mean if I just think about it the, the Donnie Rousseau's of this world and yeah I know we had a, a Skulk Berger I think Skulk played his best rugby in his career at that time and uh, I mean he was international player of the year with Brian and, and, and that doesn't you know, you don't get that sort of allocates if you're not that good. And they were all together in one side. <laughs> that just tells you that it was, yeah, it was a lot yeah, of special. Talent. Yeah, special times. In one time, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And how many uh, Irish players in the Lions squad do you predict for, for this tour? Um, I don't know, Telf, do you want to take that one? I think, <laughs> I don't know, did you watch much of the Six Nations? Do you? Do you I did. I, I watched, uh, I watched, uh, a few games um, of the Six Nations. Uh, I missed a few, watched some highlights, but um, France is playing good rugby at the moment. Mm. I think they they shouldn't have lost to England. It was their own mistake, although it was England's best game of the whole. <laughs> yeah. Good, huh? yeah no. um, I if when I'm looking, there's a number of players that are really putting their hands up from 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 Ireland side. Um, mm. It's going to be interesting to see what. Um... Uh, I'm quietly, I'm quietly confident after the way they finished two, three wins in a row, we'll have a, we'll have a decent number going over there for Long Henshaw. There's a few names that I'd say are guarantees, but hopefully, a couple more before before it happens. But I don't say this. Okay, there's a lot of talent. I, I believe it's probably one of the toughest jobs 
to pick a line side it's mm. really really not easy no yeah. i said i've told this to zach before it's i don't know if you'd agree with it for me it's harder to win a lion series um than win a world cup because you have to beat south africa or new zealand twice no disrespect to australia but i'm just more recent times mm. You might be right. I think you're quite right. And also, you know, to, to get those players from the different countries to gel in such a, such a short space of time, to really get to know each other 100% without any doubt whatsoever at any stage of the game when the game is fast-paced, I think a British and Irish Lions Tour is a far more bigger challenge than the World Cup. And it's a far mm. bigger achievement to win a Lions, to be successful in the Lions Tour than even to win a World Cup. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on today. Really, that was that was a great chat. Yeah, and fascinating. So much. Yeah, honestly, we really appreciate you taking the time. It's been it's been probably one of the best pods we've done. I think um, definitely up there with Ben's pod that we did a couple of months ago. So, no, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure, guys. Yeah. Nice speaking to you. Yeah. Nice Keep well and good luck uh, to the British and Irish Lions. We're looking forward <laughs> to having you. Yeah. yeah, we'll take all the luck we can get. Hopefully, and. <laughs> Hopefully we can get over to South Africa and uh, we were planning on going, which is a shame, but you know, I'm sure we'll get over to all those great places you're saying about. Yeah, yeah definitely. You never know what it would be like when it comes on. All right. Yeah, you never know. You never know. But anyway, Keep remember thank you so much. Yes, I Keep remember, well. appreciate it. Yeah, remember to like and subscribe and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. We'll do that. Cheers guys. Thank you. All right.